This week's reading is from 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to God's church at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is experienced in the endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will share in the comfort. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on behalf of the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Well, hello and welcome to you wherever you're joining us from. My name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here at Red Door. If you've been around any length of time, you'll know that For the past seven years, I have been doing my best to emulate and imitate Jimmy Young. And so given that last week he was sick and isolating at home, recording from home, uh, having had a COVID test done, I am in the exact same boat today. Um, uh, I'm isolating at home after coming down with a pretty mean head cold, had the test done yesterday. Don't have results yet, but... I'm pretty sure that everything's going to be okay. I think I've got a, a pretty bad uh, man flu and um, and uh, brothers, I don't mean to belittle the man flu when I speak of it in that way. I know, as you do, that there are a few worse fates than the one I'm facing right now. So I appreciate your prayers. Uh, we're going to get into a new series today in the book of 2 Corinthians. And this series is going to take us probably right the way through to December. Um, we might take a break in October for our renewal month that we, um, that we jump into each year. But otherwise, this should take us all the way up till, uh, to, to December. And I feel like this is uh, a word in season for us right now because 2 Corinthians, perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, speaks of the comfort we have as... God's people through the uh, gospel of Jesus um, and all that that means for us. And so we're going to explore that over the coming few months. I'm excited to get into it with you today. Uh, As you know, we always say that the way, the best way to understand the Bible, as with any text really, is to know the context of the text. And so by way of introduction today, Uh, As we study the first 11 verses of the book, 
uh, I do want to look at some context with you. And just a heads up from the beginning, the context of the book of 2 Corinthians is quite complex, very relationally complex. Uh, Paul's relationship with the people in Corinth is complex, and so we need to tease it apart if we're going to rightly understand the rest of the book. And I hope this will stand us in good stead uh, to study the rest of the book. And so uh, we're going to do a bit of that this morning and then look at the passage itself. But to begin with, let's take a look at the first couple of verses of chapter 1. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Corinth is, in the first century, is this huge metropolis in southern Greece and It's situated on an isthmus, uh, so between two seas, and so it's a a hub, uh, a meeting place, a confluence uh, of trade in the first century, which means it's very wealthy and very multicultural. And so you have this huge city of Corinth that Paul visits on his missionary journey, and he establishes a church there uh, with two friends, Priscilla and Aquila, who have become believers in the gospel, and they plant the church there in Corinth and then stay for about 18 months to establish the church there. It has its own uh, troubles to deal with, its own particular set of circumstances, which makes the the running of the church a little more difficult. Um, not only is it a uh, a very busy, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious city, a very real melting pot, uh, but it also has a reputation as being a place of great sexual immorality. So in the first century, to be a Corinthian was a byword for being sexually immoral, or at least very sexually liberated. And this was an issue that the church in Corinth was going to struggle with over and over again, as we see in in 1 Corinthians, and as we'll see again in 2 Corinthians as well. And just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, because we live in a context where our sexual ethics, even though we see them as being quite liberated and progressive, are still essentially Christian in their underpinning. That wasn't the case, obviously, in first century Corinth, where the gospel had only just arrived. And so their sexual ethics were very Roman, very Greek. And um, this is picked up, actually, in my favorite book of 2019, which I recommend to you thoroughly. Uh, Tom Holland is an atheist historian uh, and uh, Englishman, and he wrote this book, a large book, called Dominion. The Making of the Western Mind. It's basically an exploration of the history of Christianity from its beginnings up until the present day. And he makes the argument that Western civilization really is underpinned by Christian belief. Everything we sort of take for granted now as being Western actually has its roots in Christian belief. And he makes, it sort of highlights this point point by um, showing us the contrast between first century sexual ethics in 
Rome and Greece and contrasting them with the, uh, the sexual ethics that Paul preached in these churches that he had planted. So, for example, in, uh, on page 81 of this book, uh, I'm going to quote from Tom Holland, and this is um, a little explicit, uh, but it needs to be to get to the reality of how things were in Corinth at the time. But he says here, uh, Men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of a road as a toilet. In Latin, the same word, Mayo meant both ejaculate and urinate. To the presumptions that underlie this, however, Paul brought a radically different perspective. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So he had demanded of the Corinthians. And so he highlights there just the gulf uh, in understanding of basic sexual ethics that stand, that stood between Paul who brought his gospel message and planted a church and converted people to gospel belief and the underlying presumptions of the people in Corinth. This is just one example of, of the difference between a gospel worldview that Paul brought and the one that people had by nature as first century Greeks. And so he establishes this church over 18 months. Then he departs, as he often did, establishing a church, then going on to plant more. And he goes right across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus in Asia, Asia Minor. And uh, from Ephesus, he writes his first letter to the Corinthians. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky because you need to understand from the beginning that Um, Paul writes at least four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them have been lost to history. Two of them we have in the Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But you need to understand that there are four in order to understand the books themselves in their context. And so let me explain this um, just so that we get a, a sense of his interaction with the Corinthians, which comes into the letter that we're going to study right now. So, Four letters. Let me explain each one. The first letter. So the first letter that Paul writes from Ephesus back to the Corinthian church is lost to history. We don't have a copy of it, uh, but we know he wrote it before he wrote 1 Corinthians because he refers to it in 1 Corinthians. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians 5.9, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So again, this besetting sin, part of kind of what it meant to be Corinthian at the time of sexual immorality is something that's going to plague this church as they seek to live uh, Jesus' lives and fall back into the, the sins of their fathers, so to speak. And so Paul writes to them in this letter, now lost, um, at least some of which was about abstaining from that way of living, turning, repenting to follow Jesus. But he gets an oral report uh, from somebody that not only have they misunderstood that letter, but um, they've they've also fallen into all kinds of trouble relationally among one another. There's all kinds of disunity and craziness going on in the church. And he gets this report 
uh, and and this is how Andrew Wilson describes the state of the church at this time. The Corinthians have worked their way through the entire body of Christian doctrine and praxis, that is practical theology, and made a pig's ear of all of it. There is division, not unity, about virtually everything. Leadership, baptism, marriage, idol food, spiritual gifts, eschatology, that is theology of the end times. Corporate gatherings are a weekly debacle and do more harm than good. License-flaunting dress codes, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper, self-indulgent spirituality, total chaos. So in response to this oral report that the church in Corinth is in chaos, Paul decides to write to them again. And so he writes a second letter. Now this second letter is what we call 1 Corinthians. Now about the same time that he's writing his second letter, our 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, uh, some false teachers are coming into the church at Corinth. They're coming along to undermine what Paul has established in the church there. And they're preaching a gospel different to what Paul has preached to them. So this is a very dangerous time where Paul's whole, Paul's whole ministry of gospel proclamation is being undermined by these false teachers who, whom he calls super apostles because that's what they see themselves as. As, you know, Paul is a regular apostle. We're like apostles 2.0, super apostles. You should go with us rather than stick with Paul. And so they come along and they're doing everything they can to undermine his ministry. They're calling into question his motivations in collecting money from the Corinthians for the sake of the poor in Jerusalem. They're saying, well, you know, maybe maybe that money's for himself. Maybe it's not really for the poor. Um, he, they're calling to question his courage. Um, he, Paul quotes them in our letter where he, where he says this, His letters are weighty and powerful. But his physical presence is weak, and his public speaking amounts to nothing. So in the first century, especially in Greek culture, um, the, this role of the rhetorician, the role of the philosopher, was, was a very important one. And it wasn't just about what you knew or the content of your message, it was about how you presented yourself. And so they're undermining him by saying, he, you know, he's, he, he writes big words, but in, in, in reality, in the flesh, he's very weak. He's not a big, you know, Greek god, Hercules type character. Uh, he's just this weak little Jewish guy. And in, in the flesh, he's pretty, pretty weak. In fact, he can't even really preach very well. You know, he's, 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 he's all up in his head. He's not really a speaker like we are not a professional spokesman like we are. And so all of this was undermining Paul's authority and therefore his message. And his response was to really identify them, not just as enemies, but as false apostles, as false teachers. And he says as much again in our letter. He writes, For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel 
which you had not accepted. You put up with it splendidly. Now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super apostles. And again, but I will continue to do what I am doing in order to deny an opportunity to those who want to be regarded as our equals in what they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. Now, in response to this threat, the threat not only to Paul and his ministry, but to the gospel work in Corinth that was posed by these super apostles, Paul responds by sending Timothy to Corinth just to check things out, see what how things are. Remember, there is no 24-hour news cycle, there's no social media, there's no email, there's no texting, there's no way of knowing how things are going. And he's on the other side of the Aegean Sea, very anxious for these brothers and sisters whom he really gave birth to in the planning of the church in Corinth. And so he sends Timothy, one of his right-hand men, uh, along to Corinth to see what's going on. And when Timothy arrives there, he finds the church in turmoil. You can read about the sending of Timothy in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, but Timothy finds it just in bits and disunity and all the things described in that quote from Andrew Wilson about the chaos in Corinth was true. And so when Timothy reports back to him that this is the case, Paul decides to go himself. He's going to go and sort this mess out. Unfortunately, when he gets there, his visit is is at, uh terribly um, anguished one. It tears him apart because he's not received well. Uh, People doubt his motives, accuse him of wrongdoing, undermine his authority. It seems like the super apostles have won the day and rather than sticking around and and making a big fight out of it, Paul decides quite humbly that he's going to withdraw. He's going to go away again and and just regroup rather than making a big scene of it in Corinth. And so that after that painful visit, he withdraws again to Ephesus. And it's from there that he writes his third letter. So first letter, lost to history. Second letter, our 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. And then from Ephesus, he writes a third letter. So this third letter, lost to history, Uh, It was a very tearful, very severe letter. It was written out of Paul's anguish for these brothers and sisters that he loved so much. It was also written as a rebuke, as a warning of God's impending judgment if they continued to turn away from the gospel that he preached. And he sent sent this letter with Titus to the church in Corinth as a kind of a last ditch hope that they would receive it and repent. And he he speaks of this letter in our book of 2 Corinthians. I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy because I am confident about all of you 
that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Those of us who are parents who have ever had to discipline children out of, out of anguish, out of fear for the direction that they're going in, out of l- deep love for them and a desire for them to turn back, those of us will understand where Paul's coming from as he writes this third now lost letter to Corinth. He's pouring his heart out to them and it, it is severe. There is warning there, but it comes from a deep sense of love. And the good news is that when Titus returns and finds Paul in Macedonia now, he reports to them that actually the, the purpose of the letter came to fruition. That is that many of the Corinthians actually did receive Paul's letter in the spirit it was intended and did repent. And he writes of the experience of joy that this brought him in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. And so, Titus, meeting Paul in Macedonia, tells him of the Corinthians' repentance. It brings him deep joy and relief that they've turned back to the gospel. But he also hears that there are some in Corinth who refuse to repent. The presence of the super-apostles is still a threat to orthodoxy. And so he decides to write a fourth letter, that which is our 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, the letter that we're going to be studying for most of the rest of this year. And so this letter from Paul is designed to both strengthen those who have repented and gone back to the gospel and to challenge and rebuke those who continue to threaten the gospel ministry of Paul in and among those people in Corinth. And so that's why when you read 2 Corinthians, sometimes it seems like a bit of a mixed letter. Sometimes it's very encouraging, other times it's eviscerating, and and it's like that because sometimes he's addressing those who he wants to just encourage, and sometimes he's challenging those who are undermining his ministry. And so we come to our passage this morning, to 2 Corinthians 1, 1 to 11. And the context, as we've seen for this first part of the letter, is that 
that uh, he wants to encourage those who have repented and turned back to the gospel. And he's also aware of the challenge of those who are undermining him. Part of the, the challenge of those super apostles was this belief that they had circulated in the church in Corinth that Paul suffers too much to be a true spirit-filled apostle. They looked at his life, it's just like suffering after suffering after suffering, going through so much in beatings and whippings and shipwrecks and all of this toil and suffering. And their view is, you know, if he was really an apostle, if he was really full of the Spirit, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be suffering like he is. And that kind of theology, which is wicked and demonic, exists to this day in some circles. Some of you have come out of churches that taught that kind of theology, that if you really are a Christian, if God really is happy with you, if you really are full of the Spirit, then you won't suffer. And Paul's life and example, indeed Jesus' life and example, is the antithesis of that false teaching. And so that's one of the things he wants to address in this, these first 11 verses that we're going to look at now. So let's begin 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may, may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you also will share in the comfort. So the main theme of what Paul wants to communicate in this passage is pretty obvious. He wants to share a word of comfort with the believers in Corinth. He mentions that word comfort nine times in that little passage we just read. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you hear the word comfort. Like what represents comfort to you. You might think of the word, the, the, the usage of comfort food. I know that for me this past week as I've been struggling with this illness, I've just been gorging myself on comfort food. Um, if you're from America, you might think of uh, a comforter. Uh, a comforter is uh, what we call a doona. So you might think of getting nice and snug under a, a comforter. Um, for me, there's one thing that absolutely means comfort for me, and it's the smell of this. This is bepanthin, which is magic. Uh, it's a magic cure for every, every ill, every abrasion, every cut and burn. And um, th when I smell this, oh, so comforting. Uh, apparently, when I was a baby, as uh, my mum was breastfeeding me, I was a real chewer. 
right? Real, real chewer. And um, if you're a breastfeeding mum who has a chewer for a son or daughter, you know the agony that that is. And um, my mum was also a very uh, devoted mother. And rather than giving up on that and just uh, leaving me with a bottle, uh, she found bepanthin to be a kind of salve for her wounds. And I don't know if it's that kind of postnatal uh, connection I make when I smell it, but, oh, so good. Um, comfort. What does it mean to you to be comforted? In our parlance and the things that I've just described there, comfort food, uh, a comfortable doona or comforter, um, comfortable smells, we tend to think of things that make us feel warm and snug and safe. And certainly there is that connotation in the word, but if you break it down to its root meaning, uh, come, uh, it, it comes from the word which means with or, or alongside, uh, and fort, forte, is the word for strength. And so there is the sense where there is a sense of, of snuggling and security and warmth there, but there's also a, a um, connotation of encouragement, right? Encouragement of, of strengthening, coming alongside to strengthen. And so when Paul speaks of the comfort that God gives, it's not just a warm, snuggly feeling, though it is that, but it's also a strengthening. And both Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the Bible are described as comforters. That is, they exist to come alongside, to come close, and to strengthen us. Strengthen us in our faith. Strengthen us to face the sufferings that are a normal part and parcel of being Christian. And so this is part of Paul's um, purpose in speaking of comfort. He wants the people in Corinth to know that to be a Christian means to suffer. That the, the, the teaching of these super apostles, false apostles, that Christians shouldn't suffer because we are, you know, born again, full of the Spirit, is a misunderstanding of the Christian life. There will be a day coming where God will come, Jesus will return, restore all things, make all things right, wipe every tear away, defeat his enemy death, uh, sickness, Satan. But that day is yet to come. In the meantime, we suffer as Jesus suffered. We follow his example in suffering for the good of others. And so one of the things he wants to know he wants us to know and the people in Corinth to know is that in our sufferings, God comes to us with comfort and it's not just for the purpose of making us feel better, but it's for the purpose of strengthening us so that we might comfort others. The ministry of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus in being our comforter releases us to have that same ministry for others. And he makes this very clear, like in verse 4 he says, God comforts us in all our affliction so that, right, purpose clause, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Can you see the comfort cycle there? That's the purpose, one of the purposes of God's comforting us. It's so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that we've received. And again, in verse 6, he said, if we are afflicted, 
it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. So Paul says, as we follow Jesus' example of suffering, we ourselves will suffer. Likewise, as we experience the ministry of Jesus in comforting, we are able to comfort. And so you have this beautiful cycle of suffering and comfort that should mark the Christian life. Both suffering and comfort. Both anguish and encouragement. And he says this is the purpose, one of the purposes in our affliction. It's not just blind fate or luck that determines that you're suffering. No, God has a purpose, a providential, sovereign purpose for everything you suffer. And one of those purposes is that you might grow in patient endurance and be able to comfort others who are in pain. And we know this from from experience. You know the things that you have patiently endured, the sufferings that you have gone through and been comforted in, have given you a capacity to be able to comfort others. The image of the wounded healer is central to Christian living. I know for myself, the the great anguish that I've experienced losing my mum to cancer when I was just turned eight years old has given me limitless opportunities to minister comfort encouragement, right, to, to those who are going through similar loss. Uh, if you just ask around in your discussion group after we've listened to this sermon, I'm sure you'll hear story after story of opportunities that God has given for people in our church to minister encouragement and comfort to those who are suffering something similar. And so, friends, this is the ministry of every Christian. It's a universal ministry. You don't need to be particularly gifted to do it. You don't need to have gone to seminary, Bible college, or read a bunch of books to understand it. You just need to be able to, in your experience of comfort in the midst of suffering, take that and then minister it to others. Now, we need to get on because this is a long sermon and we've had to do a whole lot of work to establish Uh, the context, but I do want to get to the next little part of the passage. Uh, I'm starting to fade. I've taken enough codril to kill a small horse, but it's, it's, it's about to, uh, it's whatever. Let's go to the next part of the passage in verse eight to 11. We don't want you to be unaware brothers and sisters of our affliction that took place in Asia We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and He will deliver us. We have put our hope in Him that He will deliver us again, while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. So here Paul shares a little example 
little illustration of what he's been talking about. He speaks of this situation in Asia where they were just completely overwhelmed, just utterly despairing of life itself. Maybe you've been in a situation like that where you just see there is no way out of this for me. I'm, I'm coming out of this in a coffin, right? That's how they felt. We received the sentence of death. But Paul sees in this experience, again, the purpose of God. He's already spoken of the purpose of God that through them being comforted in that affliction, they're able to comfort others. This is how he can speak to other people when they're in the, the, the depths of despair. He can speak to them from experience. Yeah, I've been there. I despaired of life itself. I thought I was gone for, right? Done for. So there's the purpose of God in that, but also he speaks again, purpose clause here, so that in verse 9, he said, we felt that we would receive the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. And so the purpose of God in this great affliction that Paul was going through was to just take the, this, the, the sense of pride that we all have, the sense of self-sufficiency, the sense of wanting to be independent, self-determining, to take that and just put it to death through this affliction. He says, God allowed us to be afflicted in this way so that we would trust Him He's the one who raises the dead. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe, not us. It caused us to put our hope in Him. And so there's this great product of suffering and affliction, which is a greater trust in God who raises the dead, a greater trust in God who is sovereign over all. But I want you to see, this is the last thing I want you to see. There is a relationship between that trust in the sovereign Lord and then the responsibility of us as believers to pray for those who are afflicted. So he doesn't just say, you know, sera, whatever will be, will be, you know, eat and drink tomorrow we die. You know, he doesn't just say, well, things are going to happen um, in this life. Bad stuff happens and we're just going to throw up our hands and, and trust ourselves to God who raises the dead. He says, no, we will trust in God who raises the dead. We have put our hope in him, but then he says and continues in verse 11, he says, while you join in helping us by your prayers. Other translations, he says, but you must help us by your prayers. He sees the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereign hand over all of our sufferings bring about good and our responsibility as believers to pray into these situations of afflictions. You must help us or while you join in helping us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. He sees God's sovereign hand not just in superintending these sufferings for their good, but in working through the ministry of humans, the prayer ministry of humans to bring about his purposes. And so we have this 
beautiful theology of affliction and suffering, of comfort and encouragement, which both comes from the sovereign hand of God above, who is Lord over all things, who raises the dead, and through the ministry of his people, through the prayers that they offer on behalf of the afflicted. And all of this results in praise to God for his grace to us in our time of need. So I hope that gives you a picture of both the contents, the context of Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth and the, the beginning of this letter by way of introduction to the rest. We're going to take our time to work verse by verse through the whole book between now and December. I encourage you, please do read ahead. It would be a great thing for you to do in your small group or your family to read through this letter in one sitting, just as the people in Corinth would have, and to get the, the big picture, uh, bird's eye view of the, the shape of the book, and then we will break it down very slowly as we work through for the rest of the year. I love you guys. Um, I'd ask for your prayers for us as we go about this work. Please continue to pray for our church and our city. Um, like Paul, I want to implore you and encourage you to pray not only for us, but for our city so that many would praise God for answered prayer. I'm going to say a word of blessing over us now and then we'll be done. Friends, the peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among us and remain with us always. Amen.